Morning. I think there's three of you awake. <laughs> Should we try that again? Morning. Morning. All right. How are y'all doing today? They're back asleep. Usually people wait to the middle of my sermons before falling asleep. Man. All right. Well, it's, I, I'm, I'm really glad to be with you. Today, as a matter of fact, um, when Michael and I were talking months ago about whether I could come and, and speak, and I found out that uh, after Luke, you guys were going through Acts, I've got to say, this was the passage I was hoping I would get, ultimately. Um, it's a privilege for me to be able to wrap up the book of Acts for you today. Um, we started it several months ago have walked our way through some amazing, amazing journeys through your various speakers and as you've been reading. Um, But uh, I I love this section, and uh, I also think Michael knows me a little bit. He knows the longer the passage he gives me, the shorter my sermons are. (laughs) So he gave me two chapters today. So he wants you out of here before tomorrow. But I want to talk about storms. I actually have a a whole series that I do called Storm Theology. And uh, this passage that I want to speak on today is actually the concluding message for that whole series. And so I'm excited to be able to share with you, not because it's one that I quote have in the file, but because it's one that I love to look into. And it speaks to my heart every time I look into it. So I'm going to ask if you would join with me in prayer as we uh, begin to, to look into the Lord's Word and see what He has for us this morning. Father, thank You for an opportunity to hear from You. And Lord, as we look at Your interactions with Paul and with those around him, as we read a little bit of the history involved in the early church and the spread of Your Gospel, I ask that You would speak into our hearts. Father, I ask that it would be your words that we hear this morning, not mine. I ask that my words would quickly be forgotten, but that yours would burn into our souls for eternity. Father, thank you for this opportunity of gathering and just sharing together around your word. Please add your blessing. Please be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you folks have been going through the book of Acts step by step over the last several weeks, so I want to do just a little bit of review. We're going to look in Acts 27 and 28 today, which is a a very major storm that's involved in Scripture that uh, Scripture tells us about. But the actual timeline for this begins all the way back in chapter 21. Chapter 21 begins the series of events that culminates in Paul's trip to Rome. So when we look at the the storm that Paul is in on the sea today, we have to remember that this storm in Paul's life actually began literally years before. Acts 21-26 is the initial riot and and the uprising when Paul was... uh, moving into the temple to interact with, with people and to make his worship. 
And it took years, literally, 24-27 tells us that Paul was imprisoned for two years waiting. There were series of weeks before that, there were series of weeks after that. But this is a two-plus year process that Paul has been in, waiting in Judea to get to Caesar. Waiting in Judea to get transferred to Rome to stand trial. This is not a quick, easy process. This is long, this is drawn out, this is a brutal time for Paul, humanly speaking. Spiritually speaking, (laughs) never discount Paul. Paul loved it whenever he was chained to a soldier. Captive audience, and it wasn't Paul that was the captive. Can you imagine what all of those, who, who, who are you chained to today? Oh, I got Paul. I drew the short straw. Man, that guy can talk. But here we have chapter 27, the end of his time in Judea, and he's beginning to be transferred to Rome. Let's begin reading chapter 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy... Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the imperial regiment. They boarded the ship and they set sail. If you've got your Bibles and not your phone app, hint, hint, um, it probably has a map in the back. And you can follow before the real squiggly line that shows the storm that he's in, the, the path that they took. But there's some interesting things. We boarded a ship from Adamantium about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, remember that's the centurion that's in charge of Paul, Julius allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. They're starting to hit some struggles already. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed in Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Snidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens. That's one of my favorite names in all of Scripture. Fair Havens. It's easy to say. Near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. This has been an arduous journey already and they're only just setting out. They're only just in the early parts and they have had nothing but struggle after struggle after struggle. Sounds like life, doesn't it? There are some seasons in life where it's struggle after struggle after struggle. Someone told my wife when she works with a lot of uh, seniors who need extra care and they told her one day, she goes, you know what, your 50s are horrible. 
Because everything starts to break down and you spend so much time in the doctor's office getting everything figured out. 60s are great because by then the doctors have everything out and you're on fists full of medication. You're okay. I don't know what comes after the 60s. I'm still in the 50s going to the doctor's offices. But we hit these times in life where things just get more difficult. And it's a struggle. And we, we, we every step, we hurt. Every step, we go, oh, why can't life be like it was when I was in my 30s or 20s? Then you'd still be changing diapers, so it wasn't all rosy then either. Paul was warning them. So Paul warned them. This is the end of verse 9, verse 10. Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we would sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. <laughs> you know what, folks? I've got to be real honest. Paul was not the strongest in people skills. He's an amazing theologian. He's a brilliant lawyer. But his people skills sometimes were a little bit lacking. And we'll, we'll see that today. Paul said, you know what, guys? It's going to be disastrous if we carry on. Paul, that would be like me telling you guys when to plant your wheat. What do I know? I'm a city kid. I don't know anything about farming except what I watched my uncle do when I would summer out on the farms in Saskatchewan. I don't know anything. Paul, you're trying to tell the ship owner. You're trying to tell the pilot. You're trying to tell everybody around what should be happening with the ship. Now, we happen to be right. Sometimes we get lucky. (laughs) But they followed the best advice possible. They followed the professional advice. Those who knew what they were talking about. Those who had experience. Those who were saying, this harbor, ah, it is a horrible place to winter in. We can't winter here. We've got to move on. The pilot said that. The the, the owner of the ship said that. Every professional sailor was like, let's get going. Because we've got to get out of this harbor or we're in trouble. When a gentle southern wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, Paul was proved right. A wind of hurricane force called the Nor'easter swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. Watch some of these words as we read about this storm. We were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. We've got to remember that at this point in time, they towed the lifeboat behind them. It wasn't lashed to the deck. It wasn't hung in nice little cranes that you could swing out and lower it down. No, it was towed behind them. Well, they were scared they were going to lose it. So they brought the lifeboat on board. And not only that, 
Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. How's that for building confidence? <laughs> How would you like to be in a ship that they went, we better tie this sucker together or we're coming apart? Thank you, no. I mean, And they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging we finally gave up hope we finally gave up hope of being saved do you notice Luke doesn't say they finally gave up hope Everybody on board realized this is it. We're going to bounce around here until we go under. There's no hope left. We've done everything we can do, and it's not enough. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, <laughs> Paul, oh man, choose your words a little more carefully. Guys, I told you so. Don't you love it when somebody says that and they're right and you're fighting for your life? I told you so. If you'd listen to me, we wouldn't be here. No, we'd be iced in in that harbor back there without much other hope after we'd gone a long time without food Paul stood up before them and said men you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost only the ship will be destroyed last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Can I ask you guys a question? You folks a question? Why do you think God told Paul, don't be afraid? It's not a trick question. Because he was afraid. You don't tell someone to not be afraid who isn't afraid, do you? You don't tell someone it's going to be okay if everything is okay. Paul was afraid. Remember, this comes after, days after, they had given up all hope of being saved. Hope was gone. And then God appeared to Paul through the angel and said, Paul, I got you. Paul was afraid. 
We, we, we read these words so often, don't be afraid, and we think, I should never be afraid. Well, do you realize that every time that God says, don't be afraid, it's because someone is afraid. Being afraid is a natural part of human life. Being afraid keeps us alive. Being afraid of the truck coming down the highway keeps us from walking out in front of it. Now, letting fear control us, that's a different story. Another way to look at all of these don't be afraid in Scripture is probably a little better way, is to think of it as God saying, you know what? You don't have to be afraid. I got you. You don't have to be afraid. Paul, you don't have to be afraid. I will get you to Rome. And because of who I am, God says, I've given you all the lives of the people on board. You're going to be okay. You're going to lose the whole ship, all of the cargo, but you'll be okay. I got you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, and for those of you who are a little bit weak in math, that's two weeks. That's half a month that they're in this storm. Two weeks. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. (laughs) In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboats down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay, (laughs) guess who else is going down with the ship? Your lives can't be saved either. Then Paul, sorry, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them to eat. They had some food. They threw out all of the rest of their provisions, and they held on. 276 of them on board. This wasn't a small ship. This wasn't a small little skiff. 276 lives, 276 souls on this vessel. Verse 39, when daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run this ship aground, if they could. So cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders, hoisted the foresail, and headed for the beach. And if you've ever watched any shipwreck movies, if you've ever read any books, you know there's always a sandbar before the beach. Because you always run into it so that the stern of the ship gets destroyed by the waves pounding it. This is where it comes from. This is what happened. 
They're driving as hard as they can for that beach and right into a sandbar. Way off from the beach. And the storm is still going. We're going to find out in a minute that it's still raining and cloudy and cold and miserable. And the ship gets broken apart. The soldiers, of course, are terrified because if soldiers lose prisoners, they lose their life. Soldiers who lose prisoners die. Not a great life expectancy for soldiers. So they get ready to kill all their prisoners. But the centurion has a soft spot for Paul in his heart. And he says, no, 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 no. we're not going to do that. Everybody head for the beach. If you can swim, get over the side and get to the beach. If you can't swim, grab a plank, grab a barrel, grab something and get to the beach. 276 wet bedraggled people clamber up under the beach of an island called Malta. That's the end of chapter 27. Once safely on shore, 28, chapter 28, verse 1, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us because it was raining and cold. See, I told you it was raining cold and miserable. Hmm. Just when you think it's over. Hmm. They built a fire and welcomed us because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself onto his hand. Just when you think it's finished, something else hits. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their mind thought he was a god. Paul went on to minister to the, the leading Roman in that, er, in that area, a man named Publius. Healed his father-in-law, healed the sick of the island, had an amazing ministry there on that island. They spent three months on that island waiting for the right season to set sail again for Rome. Paul made it to Rome. He stood before Caesar. He had his day in court. Eventually, ultimately, probably through two different trials, Paul eventually was executed, beheaded just outside of Rome, because he was a Roman citizen. They couldn't crucify Paul. He was a Roman citizen. So they beheaded him on the highway out of Rome. But this storm that Paul was in, there's a few things I want us to notice about this storm. There's a few things I want us to take note of. First off, why was there a storm in the first place? What, what caused this storm? I mean, if we look at storms in Scripture, we see some. Like, for example, a guy named Jonah. You remember him? Why was he caught in a storm? Because he was disobeying and God was trying to get his attention. What about the disciples? Oftentimes, they were caught in a storm on the Sea of Galilee as they were crossing from one side to the other. And oftentimes... 
for example, right after the feeding of the 5,000, we see that Jesus himself had sent them into the storm. He says, I'll take care of the crowds here. You guys go. Go across to the other lake. And six hours later, they're fighting for their lives on the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes we find ourselves in a storm because we obey. Sometimes we're in a storm because we disobey. Sometimes we're in a storm because we obey. Because that's where God's will for us that day is. Why is Paul in this storm? Because it was the season of storms. It's already past the Day of Atonement. It's just the season of storms. They all knew it. They all knew it was dangerous time to travel. It's just the season of storms. That's all. What caused the storm? Natural cause. It's called the, the... This happened so frequently, they even had a name for it. The wind that came howling down off of the island was called the nor'easter. This was common. This is purely natural causes. What ended this storm? It ran its course. The storm finally blew itself out. The storm ran its course. What caused this storm? Yeah, we got to look way, 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 way back in Scripture to find that out because we've got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. What caused this storm? The natural process of a broken world. That's all. Sometimes we're in a storm because we live in a sin-sick world. That's all. Sometimes people die. Because our bodies are diseased. And ultimately that disease is called sin. Sin doesn't cause all of diseases, but diseases came about because we sinned in Genesis chapter 3. We have strange weather patterns because of Genesis chapter 3. Sometimes a storm is nothing more then a storm. And we just have to weather it. We just have to make it through. Sometimes there is no deep spiritual meaning to a storm. There wasn't for this one. There was amazing opportunities because of this storm. But it was just a storm. You and I face storms all through our lives. Folks, you are either coming out of one, going into one, or in the middle of one because you have a pulse. That's our lives. Our lives have storms in them because we are human. And because we live on this earth. Now, I'm not trying to be depressing. <laughs> we'll get to the good news. There's a couple things that I want to notice from Paul's interaction with the soldier. Paul's interaction with the sailors. Let's go back to chapter 27, verse 21. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice. 
and not sailed from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong. I think that's very, very important. An angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. <laughs> we, we live in very much a post-slavery world. I get that. Slavery is a horrible thing. Owning people is just anathema to, that, to us. But as Christians, we have to understand that we are owned by our master, the God of the universe, the creator, the one who loved us enough to pay for our penalty. Paul regularly, as he writes his letters, calls himself a slave, a bond slave, a servant of God Almighty and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul understood that he belonged to God. You know what the really amazing thing about slavery is? Your master is responsible for you. So if your master is a good master, you're well taken care of. What do you think about God as a master? See a taskmaster, a brutal guy, one with a whip and chain and likes to hold you down. Because if that's your opinion about God, you got the wrong God. Certainly not the one that I read about in Scripture. Cast all your cares upon me because I want to do the details for you. That's what that means. When it says, I care for you, It doesn't mean I have a warm, fuzzy feeling in my heart. That's not what God is saying. He says, I want to take care of you. Gentlemen, how many of you have a significant other in your life? Put your hands up. Let the world know that you have a significant other in your life. All right. You like to care for your significant other, don't you? You like to do the details for them. You like to care for them. That's what God is saying when he says, cast all your care upon him because he wants to do the details. He wants to take care of you because he is the one to whom you belong. Paul understood that. (laughs) The sailors didn't understand that. And when there was finally a a little glimpse, you know what, I think... I. A group of sailors got together. If we get the lifeboat down, we can make it. We can get out of this. And they tried. And and Paul said, uh, 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 I don't think so. If they go, we die. If they do not trust in what God has said, we die. There's two amazing contrasts here. Paul who said, I was, we'd given up hope and then God came to me and said, you're going to get to Rome. So I believe God. And then there are the sailors who say, I don't and I'm going to get out while I can. 
Folks, you and I have that exact same choice. (laughs) Jeremiah 17 says it this way. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. This is Jeremiah 17, beginning at verse 5. Verse 7 carries on, But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him, not in me, Not in everybody else that's around me, but in God. Blessed is the one whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought. And it never fails to bear fruit. We got to remember, Paul was a Pharisee. He knew Old Testament scripture. He knew that passage. And I'm sure that came back to mind. I have a choice to make. I can trust the sailors. I can trust those around me who are doing what they can and they have abandoned hope. Or I can trust what God said. And I can know that somehow (laughs) I'm getting to Rome. Because that's what God has promised me. Why do you complain, Jacob? Isaiah 40, starting at verse 27. Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding, (laughs) no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, those who wait on the Lord, will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Did you know that most birds, when a storm comes along, they will dive down and seek for shelter to weather the storm, to hide out in their nest, to hide out in a safe place? Do you know what an eagle does? Yes, here we go. And it tips its wings and adjusts its feathers and uses the storm to launch itself high above the storm. And it rides out the storm on top of it, above the storm. They that wait on the Lord are the ones who can rise above the storms. Not because of us, 
but because of the Lord. Folks, I don't know what your storm is today. I don't know what storm you're coming into or coming out of. But I know my God. And I know that if you're willing to trust Him, He will bring you through. It may not be in ways that you expect, it may not even be unscathed. But it will be the best thing possible for you. And it will be for his glory. Because Romans 8.28 says God can take all things and work them together. He doesn't say all things are good. But he says God is big enough to take everything and work it for the good of those who love him, who trust him. God's got you. If you're willing to stay trusting him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who cares. That you are a God who loves us so much. Lord, I ask that you would help us to trust you in the midst of our storms to lean into you when things get rough, when things are scary, to hold on to you tighter and to feel you holding us back. Father, for these dear folks, I ask that you would watch over them, protect them, and draw them deeper into that embrace that you so want to give them. May you be glorified in these dear folks and in this church. Amen.